Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, French filmmaker, Francois Truffaut, said this, There is in me a refusal to learn that is as powerful as my desire to know. Os Guinness, uh, again, one of my favorite books, uh, sort of addresses this issue of what happens when we, when we face truth, really, in any category of our life. But um, he says, you know, we should be saying to ourselves in all categories of our life, truth or nothing. But very often we are saying anything but truth. Truth is a terrible thing. We've talked about that uh, in this series. It's tough to face. Anyway, he goes on to say either, because here's what happens when you, when, you do face, when, you, when you face some truth. Either you seek to conform your desires to the truth, which would then lead to a conviction on your part. Or you seek to conform the truth to your desires, which leads to evasions, sidestepping. So today we come to the sixth sixth sign in John's gospel, and we are looking at the seven signs, uh, which John has sort of very strategically and deliberately selected and arranged uh, to help you see what Jesus saw, help us see what Jesus saw. What, what he saw in Jesus. And John's goal is that you'll see it and you'll believe. And in believing, you'll have eternal life. I mean, that's what's at stake. Huge stakes. And in the sixth sign, we get to it, uh, John's presentation is, is narrowing. It is sort of squeezing us a little bit. And the truth of who Christ is is becoming clearer. And you're being pressed to make a decision. Choose to believe or remain in unbelief. And Os Guinness puts it this way, and I love it. He says, you either fall on your knees or you turn on your heels. That's all you can do when you absolutely face a fact or a truth. You either fall to it because it's bigger than you, or you turn on it, you refuse it. Now, when you get to a truth that forces that, Nietzsche Nietzsche called that a danger point. In other words, when you're about to cross over, either, uh, um, you know, to become, uh, to be confirmed in your unbelief or in your belief, and you're faced with certain facts that is just staring you squarely in the face, you either either accept them or you turn or you twist and you run. That's why he called it a danger point. Because you're going to have to decide to either live with that truth or not. So, in chapter 9... 
We're talking about a blind man, a man who either sees it or doesn't. Talking about blind people, especially a man who gets healed, this blind guy. And in chapter 8 and chapter 9, we learn Jesus is the light of the world. We saw earlier in the book that he was, I am the bread of life. Now he says, I am the light of the world. And so this light is going to come into our life. In the beginning of John, John makes this very clear. He is, in him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. It says, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. He is the true light who gives light to everyone. That's what John said. Now, um, there's more to the light image, and it comes in John chapter 3. I think I alluded it to it once, but I want you to notice something about this light. Uh, because this is, of course, the metaphor is there is... Um, some truth about him you have to face. He's the light of the world. Um, Now, this is the basis for judging, that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I mean, I think we all understand that reality. This is just the principle of hiding. And then John says something else about the light. Everyone who does evil deeds hates the light. That's We've always known that. All of us are the same on that. Don't shine the bright light on me so that their deeds will not be exposed. There's nothing like that bright light when I was, uh, when Gail and I were dating in college. This is a little embarrassing, if you don't mind me telling you. We keep it in the room. We're good. Uh, Gail and I were dating. Went to Liberty University and uh, you couldn't have any public display of affection. Couldn't hold hands, bump elbows, nothing. And so you just have to go off campus, you know, you'd walk around the mall, you could hold hands, you know, you'd steal a kiss, you know, while you're driving in the car or something like that, but that's all you could do. And so one night after dinner, it was late, we drove through a neighborhood, we were looking for a place, Gail was, looking for a place to kiss. (laughs) We drove through this little neighborhood and found this little post office, a little tiny one tucked into this neighborhood. It's like, okay, ain't nobody here. Post office people went home. So we sort of pull in, and I pull into where I'm facing, where I could pull out very easy. I'm just facing the road. We're in our seatbelts. Don't get nervous. Everybody, don't get nervous. I mean, we weren't there 90 seconds. This is a God's honest truth. And the brightest light I've ever seen in my whole life comes shining through that front window. And I mean, I, it, was a, it was so painful that I, I can't remember... Uh, anything in that moment, and I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. We were just in utter shock. And then a few seconds later, there's a tap on the window. This big African-American cop, deep voice. Sir, this is private property. I I rolled down the window. Little Ford Focus, old car. I rolled down the window. And he says, uh, sir, this is private property. You can't be on this. Gail's saying, we didn't do anything. We weren't doing anything. <laughs> he knew what she was up to the whole time. He did. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said uh, I said, we're, we're, we're just, we're Liberty students. I, I was trying to help him to see that we, we were, didn't mean any mischief here in, at the post office. And he, he started to crack up. Uh, Evidently, he finds them all over the city. Uh, you know, that's what I, I gathered that that was the case. And so he, uh, 
he, he just laughingly let us go. Uh, but see, this is, this is what we're talking about with this light. There's, there's, there's full, this is the metaphor it means, full disclosure. All secrets in the open. Um, all the dark places illumined. It's incredibly scary. And so John is saying, that's what happens when the light comes. That's what he means by the judgment. There's a judging concept. Just hold on to that thought. But the light has that effect. And then he says, but the one who practices the truth. He's like, oh, okay, wait a minute. There's, there's, there's a different group of people, potentially. Yeah, they come to the light. Jesus is the light, so this would be coming to him, this bright light. You're coming to it. So that it may be plainly evident something is going to be seen. And you say, like, what's it going to see? Now it sees something different. Not just the evil, that his, that his deeds have been done in God. So that literally God has been at work. And this is an amazing sort of reversal, because here's what John says. And if you're reading the text, you, you, you've probably picked up on this. Wait a minute. People who hate the light, who love darkness, love darkness because their deeds are evil. You would think that the opposite is, if someone likes the light, what would that, be, what would that say about them? That they're good. That's not what it says. It reveals what God has done. There's no good in you to see. Only God's work. And so we're talking here about what it means to be spiritually uh, able to see. Which means when the light shines, I don't see any good in me. I only see it in him. Now, we come to this story. And there's a great, uh, in, in, in his book, Rumors, Yancey tells about a Spanish author who wrote a story, who, who wrote a story uh, about a young woman who gives birth to a blind son. Uh, And uh, she says, I do not want my child to know that he is blind. That's what the story's about. So she informs family, neighbors, uh, friends, everyone. And she forbids any of the people that come into his life to use the telltale sort of words like light or color, um, sight. Nobody's allowed to. So the boy literally grows up uh, unaware of his disability. And then one day, he's playing in the backyard in the garden, and a little girl jumps over the fence. It's always a little girl. A little girl. Kidding. little girl jumps over the fence, and she starts using all the words. And in the story, of course, uh, all the forbidden words are used, and his world is shattered uh, in the face of this unimagined new reality. And in John's story, Jesus is like the little girl in the story who jumps over the fence and reveals things you you never, you hoped you'd never have to see. And this is what makes it hard to see who Jesus is. Now, this text, if you all will read line seven for me out loud, (laughs) 
I know, it looks like an eye test. But listen, a lot of times, in case you're new here, I'll throw the whole text up there because there's something beautiful about seeing the whole text all at once. And it's progression. So I've, I usually highlight in color the things that I want you to notice about this text. And in this text, you will see in John 9 that the light of Christ sort of comes. I want you to see in the purple that initially the man, his name is, he sees the man as Jesus. That's all he knows. Then he sees him as a prophet. And then he is seen as the Christ. And you see it building. It's becoming clearer and clearer who he is. And then at the end, you see he's from God. So we go from just being this man to being God, which is what John is trying to show in the text. And so it sort of looks like this, if you could visualize it. The light is shining, and clearer and clearer you see who Jesus really is. And then you're forced to respond to it. You're forced to either fall on your knees in worship, or you turn on your heels and you run. That's what you do when the light is shining. Now, this is... a. This is a tough light to see. You say, what are you, what are you, what, what's so hard to see? Well, I got this little one for you because this is what we essentially read. The beginning of the text and the end of the text. The begin, at the end, beginning of the text, you see the issue of sin, and then it comes back around to the issue of sin, really, at the end again in terms of the... Uh, because what you have is the, the healing, and then you have, we come back to the man who was healed, but in the middle, you have this sort of interrogation that the Pharisees you know, are trying to figure out. And, and what you see in here is you see how belief and unbelief ex- sort of explore an issue. That's what you see in the interrogation. And in between a sin, you say, what is so hard to see? And it's usually, almost always is, about sin and about grace. If you're talking about sin, spiritually speaking, you've got to talk about grace too. Why are they so hard to see? And that's what this text is about. So let's look at it. Um, John 9, 1 to 3 kind of starts like this. Jesus is passing by, and he sees a man who's been blind from birth. Uh, The disciples ask him, who committed the sin that caused him to be born blind, this man or his parents? That was sort of the ingrained teaching. By the way, I want you to know that this is sort of ingrained in all of us at some level. I want you to see it, but let's look at their issue first. So they haven't... Uh, they have this idea that if, a, that if you're living a difficult life, for whatever reason, in any category, it's because you've done something wrong. Or your parents have. It's a very, very direct, sort of tight connection between what you're experiencing and sin, if, if, you're, if you're in hardship. So if the parents had done something wrong, then well, then they have uh, a, a, a blind child. And this is sort of how they looked at life. And then you have the idea, some of the rabbis taught that a child could actually sin in the womb. And that's how just ultra-sensitive they were to the idea of sin. And that seems like an impossibility, except that I could say potentially, I think my kids may have sinned in the womb. That's very, very possible. But I don't know about anybody else's kids. I mean, I think my kids could have. But the truth of the matter is, either one of these are just sort of, um, it's, it's how they looked at reality, and, and you can read about this. This is true. I read a number of, uh, I say a number, I probably read four articles on this, the psychology of this whole just world theory and how many of us actually look at some people's suffering. We hear it, and one of the ways we sort of downplay it uh, and make ourselves feel better 
is we think to ourselves, I'm glad I'm not, I haven't done some of the things. They've, probably they've done something to get what they're getting. And it sort of lightens our own burden. And it makes us feel good when we categorize people who are going through certain things and just sort of assume, well, it's because they're, yeah, they probably did something. It's, it's their fault. Now, how's Jesus going to respond to that? Because this is ingrained in you. You categorize people. Uh, and this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, neither one of them sinned. This man's not blind because of either one of their sin. This is an amazing thing to have said in that culture. So, uh, <laughs> Jesus is about to make a really important point here about suffering. In general, in general, we all live in a sinful world, and as a result of that, we all suffer. Sin is the result, or suffering is the result. All sin in general. Yeah, we live in a fallen world, we sort of get the world we deserve. This is the reason why you can't blame God for evil. You get the world you deserve, generally speaking. What Jesus refuses to do is to look at anyone's particular individual kind of suffering and attach it to some individual sin. Remember, Job taught us probably the first book written in your Bible is that you can't attach suffering to an individual sin. Um, Luke chapter 13 is a very interesting text. Jesus is standing around with some people and some current events come up and they say to Jesus, uh, hey, did you hear about uh, that slaughter that just happened? Be like us hearing about a shooting in California or a shooting somewhere in the world. Um, and, and we go, no, did you hear about that? What happened? And you say, yeah. And then they, they ask Jesus, are they worse sinners because they were victims in that shooting? And then on another occasion, the tower fell. It had nothing to do with culpability. They just had to, the tower fell on somebody. And Jesus, and they said to Jesus, hey, are they worse sinners because the tower landed on them? And Jesus says, no, worse sinners. And he looks at all those people, look at the people saying, he says, repent, because you're going to perish too. What is Jesus saying? You're, we're all sinners. And we're all going to die. In fact, listen, this is how you know that your whole game of categorizing people and putting them in any categories of sin that make you feel a little bit better about yourself is so wrong. The only way you could ever say that you're outside of the category of sin is if you don't die. In other words, you're not uh, susceptible or vulnerable to death. If you are capable of dying, you've sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3. No one's outside of that category. How do you know? The wages of sin is death. If anyone in here says, I'm not going to die, then you are in a category by yourself. If you're going to die, there is no category of sin you're not in. You're in it. And so we're all in the same boat. But it still makes us feel 
a little bit better to categorize. And they've categorized this guy. Jesus won't let them do it. We learn two things from it. Number one, none of us. None of us are off the hook of sin. So give up your categories. And listen, Hillside, just reflect on it a little while. See how many times you do this. Here's the second thing. So what, so what happens if there's, if there's universal sin, but there's not, or there's universal sort of suffering, and or you could say it generally speaking, but you can't say it individually speaking. Well, then what is Jesus practically trying to say to us? Well, he says right here in this verse, Jesus answered, neither this man, but watch, so that the works, here it is, the works is that, is that word, the works of God may be revealed. I want you to see something hoping that you'll see something. One of my categories has me blind. And God comes in and does a kind of work that helps me see something I haven't seen. And it's going to be really painful when I find out I'm in the category that I just put that man in. Now, Jesus is not saying I made him be born blind so that I could show a work. He's basically saying, overall, the one thing that we all hope that whoever the God it is we serve can handle, and that is evil. Can he handle and manage sin? Because we all live in it, are rocked by it, our own sin and other people's sin. We are rocked by it. Is anybody going to make things right? Is anyone big enough or powerful enough to make things right? And Christianity offers a God who can show you something, who can work under those conditions. And that's a beautiful thing. Can you work under this condition? Now, we've seen the word work in John. And it always means spiritual. So John is not simply saying, watch me heal this man. He's going to say, watch me open this man's eyes spiritually. That's what he's really saying. And by the way, we all have to be healed of blindness. We all have a certain amount of blindness, live in darkness, and that's why Jesus comes and shines the light. And if we don't get that outside source of light, we're fumbling around in the dark in every category in our world. So the question is, can you see? Now, here's the thing. What happens now is a sort of comical interrogation of this man. Because the Pharisees, the neighbors and the Pharisees are all trying to figure out how did you come to see? They had never seen, the text even says, I've never, no one who was blind from birth has ever been healed. But this is a radical thing. And in that culture, any kind of a miracle like this would stand out. People would want to know what happened. Especially I knew the guy who was born blind and I've known him and I've known him for years. And then all of a sudden he can see in that culture where they couldn't even, uh, they couldn't even diagnose what was wrong with people, let alone fix it. This would have been a shocking sort of story that everyone would want to go, hey, 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 hey let's get to the bottom of this. So neighbors do, then the Pharisees do, and it's just a comical thing. And we're going to learn from the interrogation, which we can't spend much time. We're going to speed read it. It's just fun, and you got to see it. Because you're going to see what happens when you look at certain truths, and you're not willing to face them. And that's what happens in the story. And what we learn in the story is who can God work with? What can God work with, and what can't he work with? What kind of blindness can God work with? 
What kind of blindness? He can't. So, let's get through this story, and let's see what happens. So, uh, some of the neighbors realize this man has gone to wash. He can see. Uh, they, they realize that, and he says, they say, what happened? He says, Jesus, you know, put this mud on my eyes, told me to go wash. I did it. Now I'm able to see. And they're like, where is that man? He replies, I don't know. And by the way, that's his sort of go-to answer. He knows nothing. And that's sort of the humility because everyone else in the story knows everything. And they're just not very teachable. So they brought the man to the Pharisees. Oh, somebody else has to see this. Somebody spiritual. Because this is a spiritual issue. If this guy got his eyes open blind, I don't know. We need to look at this close enough because that would mean whoever did it is special. So they take him to the Pharisees because they are the ones who are in charge of who's special. All right? Now, Jesus on purpose probably did this on the Sabbath. And that just aggravates them to no end. So the Pharisees asked uh, this again. They asked him, okay, so you tell us what happened. Well, he put mud on my eyes, says it again, and now I'm able to see. Uh, so they said, well, this is what they say to that. This man is not from God. They conclude that whoever healed you of, of this cannot be from God. Are you kidding me? Oh, because he didn't observe the Sabbath. Doesn't that just make you want to, like, punch yourself in the face? Kind of does. Others, look what he said. How can a man who is a sinner, look what they're assuming of him, perform miraculous signs? He can't be spiritually special. Again, we're saying sinners. You see, they're just categorizing the sin and slowly stepping themselves out of the category of sin. So again, they asked the man, they got to hear it again. This is how unbelief works, by the way. Let me hear that again, because I'm dying to get to the problem of your truth. That's, that's, uh, so what do you say about him? Uh, what do you say about him since he caused you to see? Well, this guy said, well, he's got to be something more than just a man. He's got to be maybe a prophet. Now, the Jewish leaders, look, refused to believe, because that's usually how, that's sort of reveals something about unbelief. That it's not just about whether or not I see facts. There's a willful reality to this. I don't want it to be true. So before they even get all the information, they've made their decision. So now they're going to summon his parents because they don't even believe he is really the blind guy. They're not even sure he's the blind guy. That's how far off they are. So they bring the parents in. This is great. They ask the parents, is this your son? Uh, whom you say was born blind? How does he now see? So they're asking the parents. The parents are clueless. Uh, we, we, this is what we know. This is our son. And yes, he was born blind. Uh, we do not know how he's able to see, and we do not know what caused him to see. Ask him. He's an adult. He can answer the question. Haven't you already asked him? I mean, he's your best person. Uh, and so it's, he will speak for himself. Now, his parents were a little bit afraid because the Jewish religious leaders of this time, they, were, they had a sort of a, uh, they, could, they were like, they had the authority of like policemen. They could make your religious life horrible. 
So they're afraid that, of these Jewish leaders. And listen, here's why. Because the Jewish leaders had already agreed. They've already decided that anyone who confesses Jesus to be the Christ will be put out of the synagogue. They're not even done getting all the facts. But they've already decided. For this reason, his parents said to him, uh, yeah, you need to ask him. So then they summoned the man who used to be blind. Now they're going to get him again. Now they want him back. It's almost like an FBI sort of, I got to find the thing you're lying about. All right. Uh, promise before God to tell the truth. In other words, promise you'll tell the truth we want to hear. That's what they're saying. And he replies, and he says, we know that this man is a sinner. We already know. They're so arrogant. They already know. And he says, again, and I love it, I don't know. I don't know whether he's a sinner. Here's what I do know. I was blind now, I can see. Well, what, did, what did he do to you? <laughs> Asking again. How did he cause you to see? And he answered, look, I told you already. You didn't listen. You don't want to know. You're not looking for truth. It's not truth or nothing. It's anything but truth for you. Because it's hard to see. I get it. He answered, I told you already. You didn't listen. Uh, why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become one of his disciples, do you? You want to become one of his disciples? This is a really comical line. and It's a great question in the thing. They heaped insults on him. You know, when you, well, listen, when you get refuted or, or uh, when you can't refute facts, you attack. You're probably one of his disciples, and, and we're disciples of Moses, and we know, here we go again, God has spoken to Moses. We do not know whether this man, where this man comes from. And the man replied, this is an amazing thing. And it is the amazing thing of the entire text that they cannot see. that you don't know where he comes from, yet he caused me to see. And if you were honest and you realized that he caused me to see, you would know he came from God. It's amazing you can't make that connection. And what it is is they won't make it. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is devout and does his will, God listens to him. So he's trying to argue that surely God, if, if he did this, God listened to him, which means he's from God. Never before has anyone heard of someone causing a, born, a you know, man born blind to see. If this man were not for, from God, he could do nothing. That's the conclusion. That's what you should come to in this story. They replied, this is, this is so incredible. You were born completely in sinfulness. Look at they stick him back in his category that they put him in at the beginning of the talk, at the beginning of the whole chapter. You are sinful. And because you're a sinner, you can teach me nothing. You presume to teach us? So what'd they do? They threw them out. They turned on their heels. They looked at the truth and they threw it out. They didn't want anything to do with it. And so this man is one of these guys. Look, he's already decided. They've manipulated the facts or tried to. They were stubborn when the facts were actually appeared. They became angry and their anger just sort of covered in arrogance. Um... Do you remember I showed you a few, a couple months ago now in, our, in the series we did in January? I, I watched the documentary uh, Beyond the Curve. These were the flat earthers. Okay, there's about a thousand of them, at least at the time when I watched it. 
They have conventions, and they're just so convinced the earth is flat. And it's amazing when they're confronted with facts. And I'll tell you, it's a beautiful thing to watch because psychologists come in and show you how it is that we can look facts in the face and completely ignore them. One of them does an experiment, sort of like the Pharisees here. That he does an experiment. He comes up with this little laser. And he, and he literally says, they're so utterly precise that whatever it would say would absolutely be true. These laser, gyro laser things. And he says, if we could get our hands on one of those, we haven't been able to get our hands on one of those because they're $20,000, very expensive. Well, somebody very, very, you know, wealthy buys one for them. And he goes, we couldn't wait. So we grabbed it. And he says, you could put that thing anywhere on the earth and no matter where you put it, if it tilts, if it moves, then you know the earth is round and the, and the earth is moving. For a fact. So he does it. And the earth moves. And he says, but we have a problem with that. You're watching this thing and this guy's straight faced. We have a problem with that. So I had to do it again. So what I did was I encased it in something, hoping that some of the energy coming down from, uh, I don't know where it was coming from, but something would hit it and maybe this would hit it. Did it again and it happened again. And he says, well, now this was a real problem for us. So we're going to have to do the experiment another way. That's exactly what they're doing here. Incapable of seeing. They don't want to see it. Now, I read, I told you, I read a couple of articles on this psychology. And I read one article that was absolutely just frightening to read. It was so self-revealing. The uh, title of the article was um, What We Are Like, 10 Psychology Findings That Reveal the Worst of Human Nature. I couldn't wait to read that. And in every category, I was just literally dumbfounded at what we're capable of. And one of them is, we're so dogmatic. He says, it's not just that we are malicious. This is like one of the categories. It's not that we're just malicious and unforgiving. That was another category. It's just we humans are worryingly close-minded too. If people were rational and open-minded, then all it would take is a straightforward fact to convince anyone of a false belief. It should be simple in the world, in every category. Never is. And he says, why is that? And he writes in here. Partly, he says, it's because when we see opposing facts, they have a way of undermining our sense of identity. So we, we see ourselves a certain way, and in, in the light of some truth, it's impossible that we can handle it. And it changes something about us. And we can't have that. We've grown to accept some sense of how we think and who we are. Such that we're incapable of seeing a fact. And you can see it in here. There's an identity issue here. And this is a moral one. Which is big. Um, one of the things that I love about Tom... Thomas Nagel is, you know, he was the atheist who's from New York University. He was a philosophy professor there. He's, he's retired now. He's in his 80s. Uh, but he's very honest. And so he has a, a book called The Last Word. In it, he writes this. I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. 
I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people that I know are religious believers. I don't know what to do with that, he says. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Why? Well, he's honest. He says, my guess is that, uh, anyway, I don't want the world to be, my guess is that the cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. In other words, I don't want there to be a cosmic authority. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. I want to live the way I want to live. And he says, this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition, and it's responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. Most of the teachings and realities of scientism and atheism and naturalism all grow out of a desire that they don't want God to run the universe. They don't want a God to run the universe. And he's being honest about it. He says, one of the tendencies it supports is the ludicrous overuse of evolutionary biology to explain everything about human life, including everything about the human mind. There's no way it can do that. But we make it. He said, this is a somewhat ridiculous situation. It's just, hear this, it's just as irrational to be influenced in one, one's beliefs by the hope that God does not exist as by the hope that God does exist. And then he says this, I am curious whether there's anyone, I don't know what happened there, people, but the light just started to come on. I am curious whether there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether there is a God. Anyone who, whatever his actual belief about the matter, doesn't particularly want one of the other answers to be correct. That's an incredible statement. There's just sometimes we want certain truths because they affect our identity. And in this case, for sure, if Christ is this light, and what hope is there for us? So look at verse 34 here. Uh, let's put it here. They replied, you were born completely in your sinfulness. Let me, get, let me stick you in your sin category because it makes me feel better about myself. You can't teach me anything. So they threw him out. So this is what's so incredible about this text because it takes us back to the top of the story, that statement. He says, who are you? You're born in sin anyway. You can't teach us. You're in a whole other category. It always comes back to the sin and the grace issue. And we see now right here how God works in one person but can't work in the others. Notice what happens. Jesus heard that he had thrown him out, so he found the man. Jesus knew this was all going to come to this moment right here. So he finds the man and he says to him, do you believe in the son of man? This is a guy who has worked through the light and seen it in a way and he's open to it. And the son of man is just a divine figure. It's been a long time. It comes out of Daniel 7. He's the one that's going to come and he's called the son of man because he's human and because he's a king and because he will judge. Men. So the man replies, who is he? Like, Truth or nothing. 
Because I want to believe it. Show me truth and I'll buy it. No matter what it does to me, it could wreck me to know this truth. Still want it. That is the heart. Jesus told him, you've seen him. Look no further. He is the one speaking with you. And the truth up to this point, this is why this is so great, is because up to this point, he has not seen Jesus. Remember, Jesus sent him away blind. He washed, came back, had all this interaction, but he hadn't seen Jesus. And Jesus says, you have seen him. Jesus is talking about spiritual sight. He is the one speaking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. Fell on his knees. That's what the word means. Just fell to his knees. Say, Who can God work with? God can work with the man who's sinful, who's been thrown out of the religious sort of establishment, who has nothing left, who's bankrupt, literally. He has nothing. To the guy who says, I've got nothing, Jesus says, I can work with you. You I can work with. Because you will fall at my feet. So you learn sort of the two realities here of what it means to see spiritually. The first one is, and it's sort of an interesting thought, that the blind guy, because of his difficult circumstances, and we know this to be true in the world, uh, we've alluded to it in this series. People who have a lot can be a little arrogant, and it's very, very difficult to convince them that they're bankrupt with about anything. They've got it. If they don't have it all, they got enough. And so you can't spiritually convince them that they're bankrupt morally because they've got so much under control and they have so much in their possession. But you go around the world and you can talk to anyone hurting about the gospel so easy because you realize just how little you have how out of control you are. And this man, because of his, the circumstances they put him in, the category they put him in, actually makes him more susceptible to seeing the gospel than what they thought, which he can teach us nothing. It's the ones who are without that often have the greatest insight because they know how little they have. There's no arrogance. In this story, it's actually advantageous to to be blind. To be the blind guy. And they've made him to be the bad guy. But there's no arrogance. There's nothing to offer. You know, C.S. Lewis, when he came to Christ, and this is what happens when you come to Christ. I mean, and it hits you hard. He said this when he came to Christ. For the first time, I examined myself seriously. Seriously. And what I found in me appalled me. Have you ever been appalled? yourself a zoo of lusts a bedlam of ambitions a nursery of fears a harem of fondled hatreds my name hatreds my name was legion when you come like that and you're bankrupt spiritually you've got nothing I was listening uh, 
sort of emphasize and illustrate this one more time before I wrap this up and show you the second part. This is the first one. When you come to spiritual sight, the first thing you realize is you have no goodness. You have nothing good in you. Um, I'm watching a video a week ago or so. Dennis Prager interviewing Jordan Peterson. And Dennis Prager starts the interview by saying, by alluding to the fact that ever since he was a child, this is how he introduced Jordan Peterson. Uh, ever since I was a child, I've been able to, I, to, to look at human beings and identify who's good and who isn't. And so he goes on this long spiel about it. And then he concludes, by way of introduction, Jordan Peterson, I can see that you are good. And Jordan Peterson has a response that two pieces of it are incredibly enlightening. Neither one of these men are Christians. They believe there's a God. Neither one of them are Christians. Uh, I want you to see how Jordan Peterson responds to him saying, you are good. Watch this. It's not that I'm, I would never claim to be good. I think it's dangerous. But I did become terrified of how terrible I could be. And I mean, I became terrified about how terrible human beings could be. And, and that's one thing. But that's easy. it's easy to confuse that with other human beings. You know, it's a different thing to understand that it's true of yourself. I often recommend to my students that they read history as a perpetrator and not as a victim or a hero. And people very seldom do that, and it's no wonder. But I would say, perhaps, that I became terrified enough from learning what I learned that I tried to avoid the pathways that lead people to the dark places that they go. And there's something in that that might approximate good. Okay. I've been a Christian a long time. Except for maybe some people that I've read, perhaps C.S. Lewis. I have not seen anyone in culture be more aware of their own terrible sinfulness than Jordan Peterson is. And he's not even a Christian. No one comes close. I was so convicted at this point right here in this talk that it took, it goes on for a lot longer. I, I literally found myself unable to breathe at the grip he has on his own sinfulness. But I want you to know what happens when you see that sinfulness in you, if, the, if a light ever comes on, if, if, a, if a little window ever gets to you and you can see it, really, here's what your reaction will be, and it'll be just what he did. You will find something that you can call good. And he says that because I saw that terrible evil, what I did was I tried to help other people stay away from that darkness. And that's what makes me good. It doesn't matter how evil you see yourself. You will find some way, some category to put yourself in that shows a little bit of good. Everyone almost to some degree tacitly accepts the fact that they're not perfect. It comes out of no one's mouth 
that they would say, there's literally no good in me. That even my good is a way to justify my evil, to get an upper hand on God so that he owes me, to be manipulative with it to some degree, a little bit arrogant. And see, even though he started out so terrible, at the end you go, oh, what a good guy. That's how we all are. You got to be spiritually bankrupt. That's what makes you come. That's what makes you bow down when you say to God, literally, even my good is arrogant. Even my good I would use against you, God. That's spiritually bankrupt. That's what it means to see. And every single person that's ever given their life to Christ and their eyes have been opened, that's the first thing they see. The second thing they see, what I I love Jordan Peterson so much that I pray that he'll see this because he doesn't see this yet. And that is, the beauty of Christ. See, once you, once you sit there and you let that terrible light expose you, then there's another thing you see if you stay in there, and it is the beauty of grace. If you stay long enough. You know what I'm talking about? If, you're, if you've come to Christ and you've seen that even your good is bad, when all of a sudden there's that same light that exposed you, it's a beautiful light, and you can't believe you're being forgiven. You can't believe you're offered grace. You can't believe the beauty in the light. This is where the light becomes beautiful all at the same time. This is what it means to see. On the one hand, I'm demolished. On the other hand, I'm accepted and loved and forgiven. That's what it means to come to sight. Both of those. And you just, you just fall on your knees. You have nothing else to cling to. You just crumble under that truth. Uh, that's what grace is like. You know, Philip Yancey, I, I didn't say this in the first service. We're late now and it doesn't matter now. So at this point, you remember this book by Philip Yancey called what, What's So Amazing About Grace? You know, he tells the story in another one of his books that a lady wrote him a letter about this book because she loved it so much. But, but she misspelled it. And she literally said, I loved your book, What's So Annoying About Grace. <laughs> and I loved reading that. And he said, you know, it is true that grace is so annoying because, you know, what's so annoying about grace on the one hand is that it, it makes you so utterly helpless and humble. But on the other hand, it's so amazing. This is what Jesus is saying here. The second thing about it is beauty. It's just, it's just, and so look at what he says. Let's, let's just close with, let's see this. Uh, Jesus says, this is why when I come in the world, I create a, side, a kind of a judgment. I've come into this world so that those who do not see may gain their sight. This is the blind guy. He was blind and it was obvious from the tech, from the beginning. He was obviously blind, but the other guys, they don't claim to be blind. They can see. And so you get this incredible issue of when Jesus comes, those, those who can't see have the best shot. 
those who are arrogant and can see and know everything, they can't see. So some of the Pharisees heard Jesus say this to this man. And look what they ask him. They say, are we blind too? By the way, that's the question of the text. Is it possible that you're sitting in here and you've been blind to this? That you have found some particle of good in your life and you're holding on to that baby? Then your eyes haven't been opened. They're asking with surprise, like, surely we're not blind. Jesus said this. If you were blind, you would have a chance against sin. That's essentially what he's saying. But because you think you can see, you got no shot. This is the great reversal. All he's saying in this text right here is the worst kind of blindness is the blindness where you don't admit you're blind. It's the only thing you can't solve. You can't fix it. Spiritually speaking, the only kind of blindness you can't fix is the guy who doesn't think he's blind. So because you say you can see. So what it would look like in here today is if somebody said, I think I see. You'd be the person who said, I came in here blind thinking I could see. Now I realize I can't see and I'm blind. (gasps) God can work with you. And he's great at it. Just you bow your heads. At this point, you come to a place where you say, well, what am I missing? Am I missing anything? I mean, I've seen this. I mean, John, is, this is the sixth sign. There's one more sign left. How, how much more do I need to see before I'm willing to believe? And, and what's keeping me from believing? Is it willful? Do I still not see the facts clear or am I just rejecting them wholeheartedly? It's time to decide, John said. And here's the decision. It's to give up your work and let God work. You fall down before. That's what it means to believe. Father, I'm praying for anyone in this room who has been looking long enough and now it's time to fall on your knees or turn on your heels. Help us to see the beauty of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.